Hi, everyone. This is John Mandrola, and we have another Cardiology Trials a podcast with uh, Andrew Foy and Mohamed Rousier. And today we're going to discuss some of the teaching points of the GC1 trial, ISIS 2 trial, and GC2 trial. So, welcome, guys. The first trial we will discuss tonight is the GC1 trial, which was published in The Lancet in 1986 by the Italian group for the study of streptokinase in myocardial infarction. This was the first large trial to test the hypothesis that opening blocked heart arteries, in this case via the use of intravenous thrombolytic agent called streptokinase, reduces death in patients presenting with acute myocardial infarction. Patients were enrolled if they had chest pain with ST segment elevations of one millimeter or more in any of the limb leads or two millimeters or more in any of the precordial leads and were admitted to the cardiac intensive care unit within 12 hours of symptoms onset. The number of patients who were eventually randomized was 11,806. Following randomization, patients received streptokinase if they were assigned to the treatment group. Patients assigned to the control group received no placebo. The primary outcome was in-hospital all-cause mortality. This occurred in 10.7% patients in the streptokinase arm and 13.0% patients in the control arm. The relative risk reduction was 18% and this was highly statistically significant. All right, so um, teaching points for GC1, we've already done the summary, you've heard that from Dr. Rousier. And Andrew, what would you say the, the first teaching point is with GC1? I think the first teaching point is just that um, revascularization in patients with acute MIs, particularly with ST segment uh, elevation MIs, um, significantly reduces death. I think it's still, you know, to this day, revascularization of patients with ST segment elevation MIs is probably one of the most effective um, and sort of best medical interventions uh, that we have. And GC1, is that pretty much the first trial that really showed this? Yeah, I would say it's the first mega trial to show this. The other thing that you were saying before we were discussing this uh, pre-podcast was that uh, it was interesting, the, the overall risk of death in patients with MIs who didn't get revascularization. Yeah, I mean, as, an histor as a historical point, uh, I would say it is. So I, I just said that I think that revascularization in patients with ST segment elevation MIs is one of the most significant uh, interventions that we do in, in all of medicine, particularly in cardiology. However, at the same time, um, let's say 
having uh, an ST segment elevation MI is not necessarily a death sentence. Um, and so I like to sort of ask uh, students um, on uh, the acute cardiology service, you know, what do they think the risk of death is? For example, for somebody with an inferior ST segment elevation MI, uh, if they don't get uh, revascularized. And commonly, the answers that that they give are usually in the range of like 30 to 60%. Um, and actually, in, in the GISI trial, it was 6%, I believe, in the, in the control group. Um, and it actually didn't seem like a statistically significant reduction for um, the thrombolysis approach. Now, I would sort of temper that by saying uh, it was a subgroup analysis, the effect direction was generally similar. And if there were to be enough patients like this, I feel pretty strongly that there would have been a significant reduction in death. But I think that that's important to, to know because it's not uncommon that we see patients come in with ST segment elevation MIs who are really not necessarily good candidates uh, for revascularization. They may be late presenters, um, which is sort of another topic, but but they were contained within this group. Uh, people that might move ST elevations, but they already have Q waves on their EKG. They might be older, so they have increased risk of, of side effects and complications from revascularization. Um, and you know, we may not revascularize those patients. They may have advanced kidney disease. And I think it's worth pointing out that uh, just because they're not being revascularized doesn't necessarily mean that we're condemning them to death and we can still uh, probably provide some treatments uh, that that are, would be effective. And of course, we'll see that, I think, in the next trial that we talk about what's a potentially effective treatment that's not revascularization. Um, so I, I, I think that is an interesting teaching point that while this is a great intervention, revascularization, um, it's not necessarily, uh, you know, always a matter of life and death. We could even extend that concept to the idea of looking at control group event rates that I think it's sometimes we look at the relative risk reduction or absolute risk reduction and we, and we, and we forget to look at control arm uh, event rates just to get an idea of what we're actually dealing with. Yeah, which is, I think that's the most important thing is to know the event rates in both groups. So we know the absolute risk reduction and, and the number needed to treat. And even for really effective interventions, uh, oftentimes the number needed to treat is, is much higher than, than uh, I think most people think. And it's probably sufficiently high that most average patients would almost view it as like, well, that probably doesn't even matter. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Rosier, um, there was also an important subgroup in, in GC1, and it was the difference in time of presentation. And I remember this uh, when I, I was learning cardiology at the time uh, GC1 came out, and we we're always in a, really in a big rush. And so there was, a, there was really a difference in outcomes depending on presentation. Yes, yeah, and I, th I think that's a really important point for uh, GC1. 
So persons who presented early uh, and those like who presented basically in the first three hours or presented between three to six hours had the most significant reduction in death uh, with uh, thrombolysis therapy. And there was no significant reduction for patients who presented after uh, six hours. So I think that's very important uh, in these patients that patients who come after, uh, you know, like a day of symptoms may may not have the same benefit as those who present early uh, with their myocardial infarction. And and we're going to talk about this a, a ton on future podcasts. But again, we have to be careful with subgroups, right? Because the trial is powered for overall benefit. But it makes really good sense that if we're looking at reperfusion therapy, that we would think that younger or that that early early um, uh, uh, therapy would be better because you're saving muscle. So it makes plausible sense that this subgroup would be the way it is. Yeah, that's true. And I think we see this also in the trials of a stroke, which, you know, we know that in the stroke trials, the earlier the presentation, the more the benefit uh, they will have with the thrombolysis. The, the second trial we will discuss tonight is the International Study of Infarct Survival 2, or ISIS-2. The trial was published in The Lancet in 1988. The trial wa was designed to test the hypothesis that streptokinase and aspirin, either an alone or together, would reduce vascular mortality in patients with myocardial infarction. Patients with suspected myocardial infarction, who the responsible physician thought were within 24 hours of symptom onset and had no clear indication for or contraindication to streptokinase or aspirin, were included. ECG changes at entry were not required. The study was two by two factorial design. All patients were randomly assigned to receive either streptokinase or matching placebo, or patients were also assigned to receive either aspirin or a matching placebo. This led to four different treatment groups. Group 1, streptokinase plus aspirin placebo. Group 2, aspirin plus streptokinase placebo. Group 3, streptokinase plus aspirin, and the group four, placebo only. The primary endpoint was vascular mortality over five weeks. The trial enrolled over 17,000 patients from 16 countries. Streptokinase reduced vascular mortality compared to placebo by approximately 25%. The event rate was 9.2% in the streptokinase arm and 12.0% in the placebo arm. And this was statistically significant. Aspirin alone also reduced vascular mortality compared to placebo by 23%. The event rate was 9.4% in the aspirin arm and 11.8% in the placebo arm. This was also statistically significant. When used together, streptokinase 
plus aspirin compared to double placebo reduced vascular mortality nearly as twice as much as either agents alone. And these results were statistically significant. Streptokinase was associated with more minor bleeding and major bleeding. Aspirin was significantly associated with more minor bleeding. All right, let's move to ISIS-2. And we've already heard the summary from Dr. Rousier. And Andrew, what would you say is the first teaching point? I think the first teaching point is again the confirmation of the benefit of of revascularization in patients with uh, ST segment uh, elevation MIs, and then very close with that, closely with that, or equal, is the uh, nearly equal benefit of aspirin compared to placebo in patients with ST segment elevation MIs, uh, and then of course when you add the two of them together, they're additive. And it's almost a doubling of, of the benefit of either agent alone. So revascularization plus aspirin uh, was associated with a number needed to treat to uh, prevent or reduce death in ISIS-2. I believe it was a number needed to treat of 20, about 20. And it was about 40 for either, for either intervention alone, which was similar to GC1. So a number needed to treat of 20, I mean, that's really good. And that's not a number needed to treat for a composite outcome. That's a number needed to treat for death. That's, that's correct. That's a, that's really good, right? Yeah. Um, at, like I said, uh, with GC1, I mean, I think this is one of the most effective interventions uh, that we do in, in all of medicine. Um, but it's, it's nice to see such a significant benefit with something simple, just aspirin. <laughs> why, why do you think that is? I mean, if I remember right, was this, this was the first big trial that showed that aspirin, simple old aspirin was benefit that beneficial. Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I think I would just say it would be the anti, the antiplatelet effects of aspirin and the, the pathophysiology of, of um, acute coronary syndrome. All right, Ruzier, any, what are the other teaching points from ISIS-2? So similar to what we saw in uh, GC1, patients who presented early had the most benefit. And in this trial, patients who presented within four hours had the most benefit with either aspirin or thrombolysis. However, aspirin had still had was still effective even after four hours. So I think that's important that we should not ignore the benefit of aspirin even for later presenters. Probably because antiplatelet effects uh, are given to patients with uh, MI and prevention of re uh, you know reinfarction or whatever. Uh, it, it's not as important as the, as the early recanalization, maybe. Yeah, I think that's, I think that that's probably true. And, and I think it is worth pointing out in ISIS too, that while the patients that presented the earliest certainly seem to benefit the most with streptokinase, um, 
there was still actually a benefit as patients presented later. And what the what the authors did was they sort of did a mini meta-analysis where they added uh, the patients from ISIS-2 with GC1, and they sort of concluded that there was a benefit for streptokinase um, even uh, with the later presentations. Um, however, it certainly did wane compared to the early the early effectiveness, um, which is important. And then yeah, in the future, we'll talk about, you know, if there's actually a Q wave on the EC on the ECG and it's beyond a certain amount of time, is there is there still a benefit to revascularization? And I think the answer there, what we'll what we'll talk about is is no. But you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. For now, I think it's worth pointing out that the benefit of streptokinase, or let's just say revascularization in, in acute uh, in acute MIs, you know, one, it really seems most pronounced in ST segment elevation MIs, which uh, of course we all probably know to some extent. And there is a, a bit of a waning of the effect uh, as time from symptom onset uh, increases. Fair point. Yeah, I, I, exactly. But I would also just add my old age historical comment that we didn't really know this at the time. And in the 1980s, this was all brand new and revolutionary, really. Because when I started cardiology, we were just treating patients in CCUs with morphine and aspirin and nitroglycerin and, and really that was it. And then when, when streptokinase came on the scene and we could see uh, ST elevation go away and chest pain go away, it, it was quite amazing. So let's move on to the GC2 trial, which was published in The Lancet in 1990. As you have seen with our discussions tonight, thrombolytic therapy and aspirin were shown to reduce mortality in patients with acute myocardial infarction. The next question was if different thrombolytic agents or adding high-dose heparin would, would improve patients' outcome. And this was the question tested by the GC2 trial. The trial enrolled patients who had chest pain and ST elevation of one millimeter or more in any of the limb leads or two millimeters or more in any of the precordial leads and were admitted to the CCU within six hours from the onset of symptoms. The trial ultimately enrolled 12,490 patients. Following randomization, half the patients received streptokinase and half of them received TPA. Since the trial was two by two factorial design, half of the patients also received subcutaneous heparin twice a day. All patients without contraindication were recommended to receive aspirin 325 milligram per day. The primary endpoint was a composite endpoint of all-cause mortality plus the number of patients who had congestive heart failure or LV dysfunction defined as ejection fraction less than 35%.
the study showed that TPA did not reduce the composite primary endpoint compared to streptokinase. The relative risk was 1.04, and this was not statistically significant. Heparin also did not reduce the composite primary endpoint. The relative risk was 0.99, and this was not statistically significant. Unlike the comparison of TPA versus streptokinase, heparin increased totally bleeding events with a relative risk of 1.87. The first teaching point that I think, and, and I'm so struck by in a, a comment that we'll have many times over in this podcast is that, and I remember it, I was there that everybody was promoting TPA. TPA, we had lunches and we had lectures that TPA was better at vessel patency, smaller trials had shown that. But Andrew, what happened uh, in this comparison of streptokinase, the old drug and TPA, the new drug? Right, so GC2 uh, was powered for slightly different than GC1 and ISIS-2, which were looking at, at, at death, whereas GC2 uh, was looking at death plus the endpoint of significant LV dysfunction or, or heart failure. Um, and there was no difference at all between streptokinase and, uh, and TPA in GC2. And so, I mean, you could almost consider this a, uh, a medical reversal. Um, our friends, Benai Prasad and Adam Sifu have, have written about this extensively, but uh, TPA was promulgated on the basis of uh, improvement in a surrogate endpoint that frankly doesn't have that much bearing on, on whether patients live and how they feel. And, um, you know, when, when you have to put your nickel down on a, on a large trial with hard endpoints, um, it, it made no difference. So I think that's a, a really important teaching point uh, from GC2. The other comparison in GC2 was heparin plus aspirin versus aspirin alone. And in that case, uh, the addition of heparin uh, didn't, didn't make any difference. Um, it increased bleeding. We, you know, we as we talked about this before coming on, how much um, implications does it have for our current practice, being that we don't really do thrombolysis anymore, at least not in the States. Um, you know, we don't tend to heparinize patients after they're revascularized with PCI. So I'd say that the implications for modern practice are limited, but it's worth pointing out that whenever you sort of add additional anticoagulants and antiplatelets and, you know, you're going to increase bleeding. And I think we see that still with, with modern trials when we, when we look at those sorts of interventions. Um, then I think there's a couple other teaching points with GC2 that are that are quite interesting. Um, the first one being that being that this was not a trial of sort of revascularization versus placebo, but one agent versus another agent, the anticipated benefit was much smaller, and therefore um, to sort of 
tease out a difference, the, the patient populations were, were more, the patient population was more highly selected. Um, and I think that's an important part when we talk about clinical trials, especially in the modern day, where we're trying to tease, a, tease apart very small differences in these multi-component endpoints, how truly highly selected the patients are and, and how that, um, what that means for the external validity or the generalizability of, of the trial results. In this case, in GISI-2, they, they only included patients who presented within six hours from the time of symptom onset. And when they talk about um, the patients in this trial, the majority of patients presented outside that six-hour window and thus were not eligible uh, to be included in this trial. So even had the trial been positive, um, it would have actually only been applicable to a minority of patients who present with uh, ST segment elevation MI. So I think that's a really important point. It sort of primes us to, to start to think about that um, because after these trials, we really will we'll see within the acute coronary syndrome space, we're going to start to get into interventions that are not being uh, tested to reduce death for the most part. And so more highly selected patient uh, populations is really gonna become the norm as, as we start to go on from here. And it's worth, uh, worth keeping that in mind. The final point that I just like to make with GISI-2 is that uh, part of the procedures for this trial was to, to treat pretty much everybody with uh, IV beta blockers because uh, BHAT and ISIS-1, we talked about those trials. We talked about our own concerns with uh, generalizability and you know, really how uh, widespread beta blocker you should be based on those trials. But even in GISI-2, where they said as part of the procedure to treat everybody with beta blockers, only 45% of patients actually got them. And I think that that really reflects um, some of the concerns that have always existed about beta blockers and patients who are uh, hemodynamically unstable at all. And even in a trial like GISI-2, where I think it was something like 70% or more of patients um, were hemodynamically uh, stable. And I say hemodynamically stable based on Killip, Killip class one at presentation, uh, a small, you know, less than half of patients were, were on beta blockers. And so I think that reflects um, the, the hesitancy that's always been there with, with many clinicians in terms of using beta blockers. And I, I still say that I think there's a, an irrational exuberance for these drugs, even in modern practice, um, based on these historical trials. And, and I don't think that the historical trials um, support beta blockers being as uh, cardioprotective uh, and just amazing drugs that I, I see them viewed as uh, today. And so again, GISI-2, not a beta blocker trial, but less than 50% of patients were actually treated with beta blockers when as part of the procedure, they were all supposed to be on them. So I well, think- Well, BHAT came out in 1982. 
BHATS published in 1982 and um, uh, GC2 1988. So, I mean, it was pretty well known, and but still only 40% received beta blockers. Now that could be physician skepticism or it could be just the fact that BHAT was highly selective. Uh, both, probably. I think probably both. I mean, I think, you know, ISIS-1 was less selective, but we talked about how the effect was was really much less significant in ISIS-1 than it was in BHAT. Okay. Well, that was excellent discussion. I, I think that's a great start for us. So thank you.